everyone. Thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Ivan McClellan. Ivan is a photographer and designer based in Portland, Oregon. In 2015, he was invited to attend his first ever Black Rodeo, which was the start of a journey into the heart of Black cowboy culture. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, of course, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, the Outward Bound Canada Training Academy for Outdoor Professionals. With program locations across Canada that offer free programming to address skill gaps in the outdoor sector, the Training Academy is building the next generation of outdoor leaders. With a commitment to meaningful Indigenous representation and by prioritizing BIPOC and 2S LGBTQ inclusion, the Academy is reimagining what the outdoor industry looks like. Check out their website to sign up for their free spring and fall sessions. Visit obctrainingacademy.ca or find their partner link on our website. We also need to shout out our presenting sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette is a biannual large format magazine celebrating mountain culture, featuring beautiful long form storytelling from real people who love the outdoors. These stories are ones that you sit with and that you savor. Each issue also contains stunning photography. These are magazines that you'll keep and come back to. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Check them out at mountaingazette.com or find their partner link on our website. Ivan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing really, really well. Thanks for, for having me and taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, I'm excited about this. This is not a sport area or an outdoor area that we've talked about so far on the show. So this is a whole new thing. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it myself. I'm excited about your skis. <laughs> That's an area I don't know anything about. <laughs> I'm I'm not supposed to. Well, what the thing I'm not supposed to say is I I put them there to hit where I scratched the wall. <laughs> oh, looks good. <laughs> Thank you. So you are in Portland, but you're originally from Kansas. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm from Kansas City, Kansas. I went to New York for school for a little while, New York City, and then ended up out here about 11 years ago in Portland, Oregon. Nice. Nice. But while you were in Kansas, you rodeo was not a part of your upbringing. It was not a part of your culture. So did you have a relationship with the outdoors before you started this project? You know, we we would go to the rodeo in Kansas City. Sometimes there's a big rodeo called the American Royal there. And we would go and see white folks do rodeo. All I remember was it smelling awful. But like my choir, like sang the national anthem there one year, it's like a big rodeo mostly it's a barbecue competition that's what people really go there for we grew up on five acres of land it wasn't like necessarily very rural just all of the people on my block owned their house they were working class black folks and they owned their house and the city tried to put public housing behind behind their houses on, in an empty lot and so everybody got together and bought the lot so they could own the land and not have apartments behind their houses. And so we would go back there and just play all day in just like an open field. We would pick blackberries. We would build forts. We would go sledding back there. So I kind of had this interesting rural urban upbringing because of the, the property that we had behind our house. 
I moved out to Oregon and that's probably the first time that I went on a hike or did anything substantial outdoors. That was the first time I saw like the beach and really got into that for a while and then fell into rodeo around 2015 and it's kind of been like full steam ahead ever since. Nice. So how did you get introduced to black cowboy culture and and reintroduced to rodeo? I, well, it was 2015. I was at a party. I didn't really want to be at. I only knew the person whose birthday it was, was. And so I was just kind of there and it was a bunch of white folks and I didn't know any of them and I didn't want to know any of them. So I was just kind of sulking in the corner by myself and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and there was a, a black man there, tall, tall black man with a salt and pepper afro. He said his name was Charles Perry. And he told me he was a filmmaker. I'm a photographer. And so I asked him what he was working on. And he said, I'm working on a documentary about black cowboys. And I kind of, I, I, I recall, I laughed at him because I was like, that's not, there's no such thing. You can't make a documentary about that. You can make a Western. I've seen black people in Westerns. I've seen, you know, Danny Glover and Lonesome Dove. I saw Sinbad and the Cherokee Kid, Cleavon Little and Blazing Saddles. But I was like, you know, like real black cowboys, like that's crazy. And so he invited me to come with him to Black Rodeo in Okmulgee, Oklahoma that summer. And I went. It was exactly the opportunity that I had been looking for. I was working in advertising at the time and sitting at a desk. And it seemed like the most analog thing that I could do was go to a rodeo. And I needed to get out of Portland because there's just not a lot of diversity here. And I really wasn't finding community. And so the idea of being around a bunch of black folks was really appealing. So I went and met thousands of black cowboys and, you know, there was R&B and gospel and hip hop all coming out of horse trailers, mingling in the air. It was like a family reunion type atmosphere. I ended up meeting a guy named Robert Criff from Kansas City. He had on a Kansas City hat and I asked him, you know, where are you from? He said, I'm from Kansas City, Kansas. I said, I'm from Kansas City, Kansas. Where about? He said, I live off of 58th and Georgia. 58th and Georgia is the other side of the five acre field from where we grew up. And it turns out that he has a, a little plot of land there and has some horses, has a trail riding group. And they're like getting down a few blocks away from the house that I grew up in. And so it really transformed my, my definition of home away from this like urban place of poverty to like a place of, of pride and a place of grit and cowboys. And like, I, that, those are the people that I interact when I go back home now. So yeah, really an incredible experience. I bet. The, the image of the cowboy. So I'm in Western Canada, a lot of similarities to the Western US, the Midwest, the West, and that we have the same iconography, like the, the cowboy, right? You know, the open plains and horses and wheat fields. But that iconography is never black folk. It's never people of color. It's always white folks. So and it seems like you were taken by surprise as this as well. Yeah, it was it it shattered my image of a cowboy in my head. Like I had, I had you know, the Montgomery Cliffs, the John Waynes in my head, bandana around the neck, starch white shirt, jeans, six shooters on the hips riding a horse through the desert, kicking up dust. And I came to the rodeo and I saw young men with no shirt on and chains and braids riding a horse in Jordans. 
And I saw women that were bedazzled from head to toe with long acrylic nails and braids. And it was just like this, this iconography, this shorthand of cowboys was not only disrupted by its blackness, but by the style and the athleticism and the energy with, with, with which these athletes sort of perform their sport. I, I, you know, I respect that white icon. I love it actually. I, I really, some of my favorite movies are, are those old Westerns, the unforgiven untouchables. Like I, I love, I love the Wyatt Earp. I love all those images of the old West, but what's going on right now and what's going on in this community is wildly different than that. And it's really been my goal to not sort of cancel that white image, but expand it and say like, yeah. And there's, there's, there's a whole other world to it. That's, that's equally, if not more cool. So that was, that was sort of the impetus for the project for the book. Kind of. I mean, I haven't been doing things with a lot of intention. I've just sort of been rolling, <laughs> rolling with it and, and doing the next thing that sort of comes in front of me. And that's, that's worked really well. It's sort of grown organically and and expanded into places that I couldn't have couldn't have imagined. I just went the first time, like I said, to be around community and to get off the computer. And I went the second time to be around community. And then I started to get curious about like what are other rodeos like? What are other there are black rodeos in Arizona and Las Vegas and there's black rodeos in Alabama. And I started it started to see like what's the difference between a black rodeo in Texas and a black rodeo in in Arizona. And I over the course of like four years amassed a mount a massive amount of photography and debt. And it was really my wife who was like, Okay, what are we doing here? You know, you just are kind of taking these photos and not doing anything with them. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I can start an Instagram. And I started an Instagram. I needed a name. I called it eight seconds, which is how long you have to ride a bull to get a qualifying score at a rodeo. And it just took off. Lots of other people were like, what? There are black cowboys. Like not only are there black cowboys, but they're thriving and cool and, and young. And I just, I just kind of kept posting and growing a following. And then that led to brands wanting to work with me, Wrangler, you know, Boot Barn, Stetson, a lot of iconic Western brands wanted me to sort of create this imagery on their behalf. And then that led to the book because I was sort of like, none of this, the whole intention was to get off the computer and not make this digital. And now I've got like all of this work in tiny little squares on Instagram and it was driving me crazy. And so I made the book and on and on it's just expanded and and continued to grow but not not based on my my goals incredible going back to those regional variances that was a question i wanted to ask you because there's there's the communities are really different across the country what are some of those regional variances that you've noticed going to different places i think you know starting off in oklahoma like oklahoma cowboys are real cowboys you go to a rodeo in Portland and half of the people have got their hats on backward. <laughs> uh, Oklahoma, like that, your the way your hat is shaped says something about you. The quality of your hat says something about you. Some people have hats where they cut off the top and their hair just comes out and it's just a brim. Some people's hats are completely weather worn and warped and all over the place. Some people's hats are perfectly shaped on the sides. 
they they wear a brand new hat every rodeo that they go to. Not only do the cowboys in the arena show up at the rodeo on a horse, but the fans show up on horses as well. They just show up on their horses just to just to show off their horse. And so you'll have thousands of horses all around. You have to be careful not to get your foot stepped on. Like, And the fans are really, really engaged in rodeo sports. They know exactly what's going on. The announcer doesn't have to educate them at all because they're, they're all on board. They're all paying attention. They know the athletes. They root for certain people. They root for certain teams. Oklahoma has its own sports that nobody else does, like Pony Express which is a baton relay race around the arena. So that's Oklahoma. You go down to Houston and they send you a flyer for the rodeo and they say, the rodeo starts at one o'clock. The rodeo <laughs> might start at four, <laughs> maybe later. Aren't, aren't engaged in the same way with the rodeo. So they'll have different activities. Some people just show up to eat crawfish. Typically, there will be the rodeo arena, and then there will be a separate stage with Zydeco dancing. And so some people just want to stay outside and dance. So it's just, it's, it's a community gathering, but like not, not nearly the, the same intensity as you get with the rodeo in Oklahoma. A completely different vibe, way more relaxed, way more family-oriented, athletes drinking beer out in the parking lot kind of deal. Not to say that they're not serious athletes, because they absolutely are, especially the calf ropers, but just a different vibe. Arizona, uh, they do one rodeo a year out there, and everybody's super nice and smiley, and you'll see a cowboy in a pink shirt, no problem, teals, you know, they they just, they, they're, they're a little bit flashier, they'll wear a little bit more jewelry, you know, so you, you have a, a different kind of cowboy out there. Then you have urban cowboys in Philadelphia and Compton and... They've got a different vibe. So yeah, every everywhere regionally kind of kind of approaches rodeo different. You know, rodeo is really kind of a tribal activity. White rodeos are really specific and they're really masculine. They're really aggressive. Indian rodeos are very different. Mexican rodeos are different, or way more different than 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 any other rodeo you'll see. Mexican rodeos, they have a 15-person band playing music while people are riding bulls. And the bull riders are anybody that signs up to ride a bull. And they ride with both hands and or they'll ride with no hands and and people are dancing and it's just it's just it's just a different, a different thing. But every rodeo is kind of an extension of the culture that's sort of celebrating at that moment. And I think that's I think that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I wrote down a thousand questions while you were talking. There's <laughs> so many things that I want to know about. First, maybe let's talk about urban cowboys. And, you know, I know about the Compton Cowboys. I, there was a movie that came out over the pandemic, with, you know, about urban cowboys that, that I remember watching. And I can't recall the name at this particular moment. But and so that's probably where I got most of my information. But how, where, how do you keep horses in the city? How do you be an urban cowboy? <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not common. I had a, I had a brand approach me and they were like, yeah, you know, those cowboys in Philadelphia, They're like, yeah, I was like, yeah, they were like, we want them, but in Brooklyn. And I was like, there are no cowboys in Brooklyn. That's not a thing. <laughs> you know, so, cowboy, the cowboys are in Philly because they used to maintain the police mounted patrol. Black folks did mm. in Strawberry Mansions, part of Philadelphia. And they kept the horses after the mounted patrols were disbanded. 
They just were like, good luck. And so they had all of these police horses and it just created this culture of, of horsemanship. But it, it's been around for hundreds of years and it's really specific to what's going on there. And it's got its own vibe and it's got its own place in the community. You know, you break out a horse in the middle of the ghetto in Philadelphia and everybody just stops and smiles. And there are people hanging out of their windows watching the horses and their kids walking up wanting to pet it. And it's just like, it's like a positivity bomb in the middle of, of the neighborhood. And, and that's really a joy to see. And then in, in Compton, there are cowboys there because Compton, despite its reputation, is zoned as farmland. It always has been. It's all agricultural land. And so most of the houses in Compton have some sort of farmland agriculture going on in the backyard, whether it be goats or chickens or horses. So it's like the Compton Cowboys came up naturally out of that environment. Okay. And it's not, it's not weird. It's not weird there. It's, it's, it, it's common. I had no idea. I didn't either. I went into <laughs> Compton and I was scared. I went to Enterprise Rent-A-Car and all they had left was a, was a Jaguar. And I was like, man, <laughs> driving a Jag around in, Harlem, in, in Compton. And, and I got there and it was totally chill. And like, Everybody else was driving a Jag or a Mercedes too. You know, it was just like a really cool vibe. The Compton Cowboys are like super chill, super nice guys, really positive. And, and, and yeah, there's, there's, there's a family house with a, with a massive ranch right behind it. And that is, it's not the only one in that area. Wow. Compton's been on my bucket list for a long time because there's a bike shop that I desperately want to go to there. So maybe I'm going to have to also put this on my bucket list of uh, yeah. To I'm see not. I'm not at all saying that Compton's not not living up to his reputation. I'm just saying the place that I was was in was was fine, but I'm sure there are other places that aren't aren't so much fair. And I mean that's every major city across North America. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, so the book is gorgeous. I got in on the Kickstarter. I was so excited when I received my book. I've been, I'm black biracial and I've been swatting my dad's fingers away from the book every time he comes to the house. Cause he wants, I'm like, you can look at it, but it stays here. You can't take it with you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of the things, you know, there's, there's some beautiful essays in there, but I have so many questions about the stories because the photos tell so much and it makes me also want so much more. So what are your, what are some of your favorite tales from the circuit from, from your experience? Oh man, they're there. Every one of those photos has a story behind it. And people that know me will just sit and I'll, I'll, it takes me hours to get through that book because each one of them is interesting. And if I would have put the stories in the book, it would have been you know, 600 pages. And so just for the sake of brevity, I, 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 most of them don't have stories along with them. You know, one of my favorites is there's a picture of a young man named Freddie and he's sitting, petting a horse and drinking a soda. And he's drinking a straw, strawberry Shasta and which is maybe the blackest soda of all time. And he was, uh, I met, I met him a few times before I took that picture, he's, he's probably eight and I met him at a parade 
for the first time and I took his picture and there were lots of people at the parade and it was, it's in a little town called Bowley, which is an all black town. It was founded after slavery and folks moved there and they started their own bank and they started their own industry and they lived there for, you know, over a hundred years. And they have a big parade there every year in a rodeo and people flood into the town. This year, there were like dozens of white photographers at the rodeo, like taking pictures of these black folks. And I walked up and took a picture of Freddie because he was riding this tiny, tiny horse, this little pony. And he said, man, why are all these white people taking pictures of me? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the picture wasn't very good. I didn't end up doing anything with it. And then the next time I met him, he was with his uncle. His name is Bobby Prince. Mm -hmm. And I took another photo of him and he was a little annoyed, but but less than the, than the first time. And then the third time I knew his cousins, I knew his uncle, I knew his mama. All of them were around and they, they were just like sitting, sitting there grilling out. And Freddie was sitting there drinking a soda, petting his horse. And I took his picture. He didn't even pay me any attention. It was like totally chill. And that was like an exciting moment for me. Just, just realizing that relationally, I got into a place where I could get a comfortable photo of him. I had that photo at a museum in Belgium and it got sold and I got some money for it. And I gave $2,000 to Freddie. I called his mom and gave him, gave him, gave her the money to give to him. And he called me and thanked me. He, his mom said that he was going around bragging to all of his brothers that he was a model because <laughs> he got paid for his photo and told me he was going to take that money and buy himself his, his first horse that he was going to go buy himself a Palomino. So, you know, I was excited. It's like, you know, I'm supporting a budding cowboy, you know, with, with, with the artwork. And that's, that's kind of the, the sort of thread that I think that goes through all of the photos. There's, there's photos of people that I cherish as dear friends and people that I call on the phone and connect with on a regular basis and people that I've supported, you know, financially or supported through connecting them with sponsorship. And it, it's become much more than just like a photography project. It's really become culture that I'm a part of. And that, and that I really, really support in a lot of different ways. In an interview, you described you were photographing a young cowgirl who told you, like, with authority, it's going to start raining in six minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you, like, furiously worked to get the photo done. Did this work sort of change your perception of, like, Black folks' relationship with outdoors and with nature? Yeah, yeah, completely. It was Courtney Solomon, and uh, and she's just, like, in tune with her environment. She knows the clouds. She knows which way the wind are blowing. She knows how her horses reacting, you know, the field that we were in had, had tall grass and the grass was blowing a certain way. And sure enough, in six, seven minutes, it started to just torrentially rain and they were sprinting horses up the street. I was riding in the bed of a truck, taking pictures of them riding up the street. Like it, it's, it, it's, it's amazing how in tuned, I think particularly the, the female barrel racers are with their animals. They, they get these animals to perform circus level feats. You know, they're, they're sprinting around barrels and changing directions. And they, they have, they do it all through silent communication. They, they know what the animal wants to give. They know when it, when it's ready to give it, they don't crop the animals. They don't yell at them. They just are moving together silently through, through body language and, and, and through some mystical connection. And it's, it, it's, it's incredible. 
the connection to the soil, you know, the quality of dirt that they run in and what they can do in specific types of dirt. They know, you know, yeah, weather, all of those things come into play. So it's, it's, it's really been extraordinary and it's, it's changed me a lot. It's, it's interesting that you have the insight that uh, the female athletes have, have a stronger connection that way. Cause it's something I noticed, you know, as a woman going through the book and as a, you know, person who lived in this sort of Western world and the iconography, the women in your book are not just beautiful. They are strong and like just the vision of strong black women, a lot of the photos I'm personally drawn to are of women and young girls. And I, and I show these to my nieces. Do you find that there's a difference in, you know, in black rodeo versus white or mainstream rodeo when it comes to gender? Or is that just by accident? Well, I think it, I think it's, it's by design. I just got back from a dude ranch down in Tucson and I was riding for like five hours a day and I had a white male instructor and he was really telling me to get, get at my animal. I was riding a massive 18 and a half hand tall Clydesdale. I'm going to pause you right there for my listeners. What does that mean? (laughs) 18 and a half hand. 18 and a half hands is you take a fist and you put your other fist on top of it. And that's two hands. And then you move your other fist on top and then you go all the way up. So this is 18 hands tall. Okay. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I think. I'm not a horse expert, but I think that's what it is. Okay. Don't quote me on that. You were riding this big horse who was 18 and a half hands tall and he was telling you to get after him. 18 and a half hands is a giant, it's a dinosaur. It's a massive, massive horse. Like a normal size horse is like 14 to 16 hands. This is a ridiculous horse. And he's old. He's got gray hair. He's like 30. Every time that I tell him to move, he sighs and is like, well, my trainer wanted me to get him to trot. And then he wanted me to get him to canter, which is faster. And then he wanted me to get him up to a, a, a gallop. And he was like yelling at me, like kick him, you know, like don't ask him, tell him, tell him with your body. You're sitting there like a sack of potatoes, like move with the horse, big energy, you know, and he's just like really got this aggressive stance around the horse. And I started to think about Courtney Solomon and and her mother, Kenesha Jackson, and that's not the way that they interact with their animals at all. They're assertive, but not aggressive. And there's a difference. They have worked with their animals for years, every day in the pen, having the horse run around in circles and then run the opposite direction and then giving it a treat when it does the right thing or denying it the treat when it doesn't. They work with the animals very delicately and intensely over a long period of time. So they earn the trust to be the leader. You know, they earn that. So when they get on the back of the horse in a competition setting, it's not about aggression. It's not about domineering. It's about trust and communication. And it's a very, very different way of going about interacting with an animal. And I was like, I don't, Clydesdale's name was Clyde. I was like, I don't want to dominate Clyde. I want to be gentle with Clyde. Sometimes Clyde would get some energy and start going. And I was like, all right, Clyde, we're going. Let's do it. Let's do this together. It was, it was exciting. So yeah, there's, I would say that the males in rodeo are more about dominating an animal and, and, and being aggressive and showing strength and telling, not asking. And I would say that the females typically, and this isn't, as it isn't across the board, are more about collaboration and more about that silent communication. And it's just, you know, different schools of thought. I think 
both of them are effective. Both of them get the results, but it's just about how you, how you want to go about doing things. Right. So throughout the project and now, you know, now that you've become part of the culture, part of the community, what's something that surprises you or some things that surprised you reflecting back based on like sort of the preconceived notions you had coming in? Oh, I I would say like there have been moments of synergy, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to use too big of a word. Connectedness in the community that have been really, really exciting. I've got a photo from the Arizona Black Rodeo. And at the beginning of the rodeo, they do a cowboy prayer and they pray that everybody is safe. And they pray that everybody has the money to pay their dues. And it's like, very cowboy. But I took a picture during the cowboy prayer and every single man had his hat off and every single person had their head bowed and their eyes closed. And this is that there's probably 800 people in this photo. Without exception, everybody is doing the exact same thing. They're just like reverent and and in the moment. And I, I just think that's an exciting piece of our community to be like, to be that unified, to say like, when it's time to pray, we pray, you know, like, yeah. you know, regardless of where you're at or, or, or who you are or how you're feeling, you know, you, you, you treat that moment with respect and reverence. And that's, that's super exciting. I think one of the other things is there's an individualism in, in black rodeo that's, that's permitted amongst the athletes. You know, people aren't scared to put on their fringe. And people aren't intimidated to, to wear something bright or something outlandish. And you'll see a bull rider in crazy yellow chaps with the Tasmanian devil on them. And, and they're riding them with pride and nobody makes fun of them. You know, nobody, nobody judges them for, for having that style and, and, and for expressing themselves how they want to express themselves. There's a, there's a real community aspect as well. But then there's individualism on top of that. That's really celebrated. I think that I think that's super cool. A lot of times in white rodeo, you'll kind of see everybody be super homogenous in their unity, and in the black in the black rodeo, that that's not so much the case. Right. So the aspect of community is something that like continually comes up. You've brought it up quite a bit. There's a really an essay that touched me sort of within the book that talks about how the time together traveling on the circuit is equally important playing cards and driving. And, and so this is really more, this is more than sport. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's probably secondarily. Most black rodeos don't really pay that much money. White rodeo, you can make a lot of money at most of them. At some of them, you know, it's no big deal. You, you have added cash at a rodeo. And so you pay your entry fees, which are 80 to $100, and then you win those entry fees if you win your event. To get people to show up, they put added cash on top of that. The rodeo puts in some money. And at a white rodeo, that money can be anywhere from 100000 to a $1 million split across all the events. So you can go home with some pretty good money. You can go home with 10000 12000 $20,000 at the end of the rodeo. Black rodeo, the added cash might be somewhere between 5000 to 30000 if it's a big rodeo like the Arizona Black Rodeo. So the purses are a lot smaller. And so most of the athletes are going there to compete for fun. They're going there to compete when they're not working as a mailman or when they're not on their guard duty or when they're not working at the front desk at a college you know, most of the folks have day jobs. They don't cowboy full time. 
and they pick which rodeos they go to based on like, who's going to be there. You know, they want to go to the big rodeo in Okmulgee because there's going to be lots of their friends there and it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a great moment to, to connect with folks. And you'll see, like I said, Courtney Solomon go to a rodeo and compete against her mom in the same event. And then Kanisha's mom, Courtney's mom is Kanisha. Kanisha's mom, Stephanie, will compete as well. They may all be competing in the same same event, and there's three generations riding horses. And so, you know, for the the, the opportunity to kind of show up and 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 be around people you know and and catch up and share stories, and then more than compete, show what you can do, show off your new horse. I think I think that's really really what it's about, you know, at its root. Awesome. This sounds like so much fun. Yeah. So when you've become part of the culture, like you mean all the way in, including your family. In an interview, you said your children were so young when you started the project, they only ever knew black cowboys. And now they're fully entrenched. Yeah. My daughter rides horses. She rides better than I do. Well, like a lot better. I can't like post like you when you ride, you like kind of rock with the horse and you lift yourself up. She's learning to ride English and I I just can't, I can't ride as good as she can. I bounce all around in the saddle. I'm sloppy. I apparently am not assertive enough, (laughs) (laughs) but she is, you know, like when she gets on her horse and she's ready for the horse to trot, she, she gives it a little kick and then she goes and she's six and she like, she like does it with such intensity that it like, it like scares me. And the horse listens to her. It takes off. It doesn't, it doesn't mess around. So she's, she's a, she's a really good horse rider and she's really into it. And they've got their Western gear and they go with me to rodeos and they, they think I'm a cowboy because I often wear a cowboy hat and boots. If I have to go somewhere, not a cowboy, but my kids think that I am. So I, I let them think that hopefully they don't tell their friends it's cool, but <laughs> But, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm excited for them to kind of grow up with this imagery being something that they take for granted and, and being something that they just like, know. and they see me constantly looking at these images and they're around black cowboys and it's not anything that is, is hidden from them or anything that's a mystery. And so I'm hoping that they grow up with the, with the confidence to sort of own their own identity and and do whatever it is that they want and that they're not just like, oh, black people are basketball players or rappers or, or any of the other like sort of common media tropes around black culture that they're like, well, no, you know, be a cowboy, be a cowgirl. I could be, you know, anything. I can do whatever I want. You know, that's my big goal. That's a perfect goal. No limitations. Exactly. Yeah. And and now I saw on Instagram and I was so excited. And I, that's when I reached out to you for the interview. You're going to have a rodeo in Portland. Yeah, we're producing a rodeo. Me and Gresham, city of Gresham's first black city councilman. Gresham's a, a little, little town outside of Portland. Vince, Vince Jones Dixon are working on our own rodeo event in Portland which will be the first black rodeo in Oregon ever. And the first rodeo in Portland in a long time, in in over 10 years. And so we're working with the city on it. It's going to be a great family event. There's going to be music played at the same time as the rodeo. That's something that I learned from the Mexican rodeos, is that just having the music going while the events is going is so exciting. Then we're going to have a DJ. We're going to have a funny man. There's going to be, you know, soul, soul food there. There's going to be a VIP liquor tent. Like it's going to be a blown out 
big event that's going to be the summary of everything that I've learned in the last eight years. We're going to bring in athletes from all around the country. It's a big, 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 big black rodeo. And I'm hoping that that's going to draw people from other parts of the country because there are very few black people in the Pacific Northwest that cowboy. And so we're going to really rely on cowboys from other states. So when do tickets go on sale? Tickets will go on sale sometime this month. Okay. Yeah, we're just making sure that, you know, all of our technology works good and figuring out exactly how many tickets we can sell. We're having it at the Expo Center, which is a large convention hall. We have 100,000 square foot of space, but we have to bring in dirt. We have to build an arena inside of there, and then we have to bring in bleachers. And so we have to figure out exactly how many seats we can sell in there, including like a VIP section and a stage for music. And uh, yeah, so there's, there's some calculation that needs to be done. I don't want to start selling tickets before I know how much space I have. So yeah. That seems reasonable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Don't be an airline. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think we'll, I think we'll be able to sell 3000 tickets, but that's just a finger in the air estimate. Okay. And what are the dates? The date is June 17th. This year is the eight seconds Juneteenth rodeo. The the event, the Expo Center wants us to do it for two days because they're like, that's a lot of dirt. You're bringing in like four tons of dirt and fencing and animal pins. And you're going to have a one day event. <laughs> like, why don't you have a two day event? Like, because that doubles my cost. I don't want to do a two day <laughs> event. So there's a potential that we'll do it Friday, Friday, Saturday, but we're still figuring that out. Well, where do people fall? Like, where do we find you so that people, you know, can keep up with as tickets go on sale and more information gets released? You can follow me on Instagram. That's where I'll, I'll have all the updates going. We'll announce all the, all the big progress that we make. You know, hopefully there's a very big announcement next week on my Instagram. And that's A-E-I-G-H-T-S-E-C-S is the, is my handle, 8 sex. And then that'll lead you to an email sign up if you prefer to get email updates. But yeah, we're rolling. We're making it happen. You know, I I announced it on Instagram and we didn't have anything figured out. (laughs) We didn't have any money. We didn't have a venue. We didn't have anything. And, you know, that's just because that that's like I said, how I sort of rolled with the eight seconds project It's just like somebody said, do you want to do a rodeo? And I was like, well, let's just. Let's just put it out there. I think putting it out there will set the intention that this is something that we're going to do. And I think a lot of resources will just sort of fall in front of us. And that's exactly what happened. Cowboys started coming out of the woodwork saying they wanted to be a part of it. People came out saying they wanted to volunteer. We got over 700 people to sign up day one to to be be the first ones to get pre-sale tickets. A cowboy named Ashanti Samuels called me on the phone. And said, I've got animals, I've got bulls, broncos, and steer, and I've got an arena. I've got all the fencing that you need. So I'm willing to to just bring all that just to see you, see you shine. We got a concert stage. We got all of this stuff just from declaring that this is what we wanted to do. So it's been, it's been really, really miraculous to, to sort of see it, see it all come together. That is absolutely incredible. What a yeah. phenomenal story. My gosh, my head is just like, it's exploding. And this sounds like such an amazing event. For our listeners, you're going to be able to find the links on where to find Ivan, 8Sex, the website, the Instagram, and everything else 
all on the show notes for this episode. Ivan, do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to leave us with? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot. This is a lot of work. It's fun. So it doesn't seem like it, but I, I got, I get a lot of the credit for, you know, what, what we've accomplished in this space. And I get a lot of celebration and accolades from cowboys and stuff, but like, you know, it's not, it's not just me. It's a team team of people that are making this happen from like my wife who does so much stuff behind the scenes and gets no credit for anything to my kids who put up with me being away from home for sometimes weeks while I'm out rodeoing. I put them to bed on, on the video chat and they, and they tolerate that and they're accommodating and they take care of their mom while I'm gone and they're, they're great. And now with the rodeo, you know, there's a eight person team behind that. And an eight seconds name is on it, but I just want to, you know, just thank, thank all of the people that, that support this vision and, and, and roll with me and, you know, work without credit. Incredible. And thank you so much for joining me today. This has been an incredible conversation. I have learned a ton and I just really appreciate your time. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for, for having me on and look forward to continue talking to you. Absolutely. And that is it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where to find Ivan and 8 Seconds are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope you learned as much from this conversation as I did. And if you did, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.